I'm Kat. I'm Taylor. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. Hello. Yo. Uh, This week we've got the story of a serial killer who committed at least 12 murders across four countries on two continents, but is perhaps most well known for becoming a darling of Europe's literary elite during the 1980s was declared rehabilitated and released, only to then go on a killing spree. <laughs> yeah, so this is the story of Jack Untervega, and at the end, you'll find out how this episode actually links up to a new piece of free content we have coming out every month for everyone. Yeah, it's very, very exciting. Yeah. Also, just that little snippet explanation there. It's like, you can't make this shit up. Yeah. I, when I was writing the, the intro, I was like, how how do I write yeah. an intro like I normally write? And I was like, fuck it, we're going like, you can't make, like, stranger than stranger, fiction, let's yeah. go with it. Honestly, though. Uh, get ready, everyone. Yeah. Jack Unterweger was born Johann Unterweger in Judenburg, Styria, Austria, in August 1950. His mother, Theresia Unterweger, Unterweger was a waitress and bartender from Vienna, and his father was Jack Becker, an American soldier. Their pair had met on holiday in Italy the previous year, and his mother was just a teenager when she got pregnant during this holiday in 1949. Jack Becker never met his son, nor did he have any involvement in his upbringing, financially or otherwise. Some sources, including Unterweger himself, describe his mother as being a sex worker, but others dispute that. She had multiple convictions for fraud and was imprisoned numerous times during her pregnancy and Unterweger's childhood. As a result of her prison stays and her struggles to care for her son after her release, Unterweger was uh, sent to live with his grandfather and step-grandmother in southern Austria in 1953. Uh, Unterweger described his childhood with his grandparents as being brutal. According to an article by Ranker, he claimed that his grandfather was a violent, raging alcoholic who forced the young boy to share a bed with him and the various women he brought home with him. Although these claims have been disputed by Unterweger's family, including by his step-grandmother, who obviously lived in the same house as him and his grandfather, where this was all supposedly going on. Yeah. And although the family are almost always going to deny any kind of like neglect or abuse, so we have to take what each side says with a pinch of salt. Mm-hmm. And also even if you grow up within even like a stable household with grandparents, your parents being absent, especially in prison, okay. as his mother was, yeah. is considered household dysfunction, which is a type of adverse childhood experience or ace. Mm-hmm. But regardless of what the truth is of this household dysfunction and setup, uh, Unterweger fell into a life of crime at quite a young age, allegedly beginning as a small boy with thefts of small animals from local farms alongside his grandfather. Uh, he was in and out of trouble, it seems, most of his childhood. And by the age of 18, he had a criminal record and would spend the next eight years in and out of prison for a variety of violent offences, including beating up a sex worker 
and for pimping out young women as sex workers. Great. Uh, he would later describe these violent assaults on women as, quote, I wielded my steel rod among the prostitutes of Hamburg, Munich and Marseille. I had enemies and conquered them through my inner hatred. Ah, yes. Inner hatred, the lesser-known cousin of inner strength. <clears throat> Jesus Christ, this guy. Yeah. And as well as his mother, Unterweger also claimed that his maternal aunt was a sex worker, and that when he was a teenager, she was murdered by a client. Uh, in December 1974, when he was 24, Unterweger's violence would turn deadly when he murdered Margaret Schaefer, an 18-year-old woman from West Germany, by strangling her with her own bra. Now, sadly, like so many other female victims of serial killers, we don't know anything about Margaret other than that she was 18 and from West Germany. And because of the notoriety that would end up surrounding Unterweger, Margaret has unfortunately pretty much become a footnote in her own murder, which, you know, we have spoken about before in some of these other cases. And it's yeah. it, terrible. It's just a recurring theme. Yeah. Now, some sources have described her as a sex worker, but the other version of the story is that Margaret was simply a woman who Unterweger propositioned for sex, and she turned him down. And apparently, that was enough for him to kidnap and murder her, bludgeoning her with an iron bar before strangling her. Uh, Unterweger's girlfriend at the time, Barbara Scholes, was also involved in the crime, but we don't know to what extent nor do we know if she was charged or convicted of anything. Uh, the couple left Margaret's naked body in the local woods, and we don't know much about the investigation, but we do know that Unterweger was soon arrested. So, when the case finally went to trial in 1976, Unterweger tried to claim diminished responsibility, claiming that when he murdered Margaret, he suffered some kind of psychotic or psychological break, and that he saw his mother's face in her eyes. Great. So many believe that this, coupled with the like the sob story about you know, tragic childhood, was an attempt to elicit sympathy from the jury and the public. You know, he was not murdering an eighteen-year-old woman; he was instead killing his abusive prostitute mother in a moment of madness. Mm -hmm. But it didn't work. <laughs> Shockingly. Yeah, go figure. Uh, and Unterweger was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 15 years before he could apply for parole, which was the standard minimum term in Austria at the time mm -hmm. for murder. And as Taylor just mentioned, we have no idea what happened to his girlfriend, Barbara Scholz, uh, to what extent she was involved or whether or not she was charged along with Unterweger. Mm -hmm. I don't think she was charged with murder because I feel like that would be a well-known part of the story. Yeah, you feel like that would get a mention somewhere. Mm. Uh, now that should have been the end of the story, but that would have made for one of our shortest episodes yet. <laughs> yeah. uh, and something happened during Unterweger's time in prison that changed all of that anyway. But prior to his conviction, Unterweger had been illiterate. But once he was inside, he learned to read and write and took a number of correspondence courses. During Unterweger's time in prison, he began writing. 
He wrote poems, plays, children's stories, and radio shows, and even an autobiography called Purgatory or the Trip to Prison, Report of a Guilty Man. So it's basically three titles. Yeah, he just couldn't decide, one. which is the mark of a bad writer if you have to just put <laughs> all your ideas into the published work. Um, so his books and plays were published across Austria, and Unterweger portrayed himself as a reformed character, as a man who had accepted what he had done and educated himself and changed for the better. He attracted the attention of Austria's literary elite, who, in the mid-1980s, just 10 years after Margaret's murder, began a campaign to have him released from prison and formally pardoned. This campaign, according to an article by All It's Interesting, which is linked in the show notes, was designed to show that Unterweger was both a true artist and a rehabilitated man. So scores of people belonging to what's described as Austria's creative and literary elite joined the campaign to have Unterweger released, based largely on his autobiography, which was described as showing clarity, depth and tenderness. Uh, one of his most vocal supporters was the author Elfried Jelinek, who would go on to win the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2004, along with Gunther Grass, the 1999 recipient of the Nobel Prize for Literature. Uh, government officials and politicians even got involved, with one saying that the Austrian justice system would be measured on the result of the Unterweger case. Oh, God. There's a slight problem. Uh, so Unterweger had been convicted of murder, and his life sentence had a minimum term of 15 years before he could be paroled. So when the campaign presented their petition to then-president uh, yeah, then president of Austria, Rudolf Kirchschläger, not just have Unterweger released early, but to also have him pardoned for murdering a woman. Now, the president said, no can do, he's got another five years to serve, minimum. Yeah. Um, so undeterred, his supporters continued their campaign, claiming that his transformation from common criminal into a literary genius was proof of his rehabilitation, which isn't a new argument or an uncommon one. Mm -hmm. It's just another version of the idea that of like blue and white collar crime, mm -hmm. like only the working classes, the poor commit violent crimes or crimes of any kind. Ah. Mm -hmm. uh. Just, I just like the audacity of like, not only do we want you to release him before parole, but we want you to pardon him too, please. Yeah. Like, that, that's the thing. Like, it's like, it doesn't matter that she's dead. He's, yeah. he can write words on a paper. Mm. <sighs> Infuriating. It is. It's, it's just, it, it's just so infuriating on so many levels. Yeah. I mean, it just, for one thing, it reeks of classism. Yeah, it's just arrogant. Um, it's, like you say, it, it's another woman, just a footnote in her own murder. Mm -hmm. Like, no, he, it, this, it wasn't like this was self-defense. No. This was, this was a violent murder, likely with, like, a sexual motive, possibly, like, sexual assault involved as well. Yeah. 
wasn't an accident. She was battered and then she was strangled with her own bra. Yeah. Like, this was not... This is not like a moment of madness. No. (laughs) Absolutely not. And it's not like it's his only crime either. Yeah. Like, there's a a criminal history here. Yeah. So, uh, um... In May 1990, having served the minimum of 15 years, including time served while he was waiting trial, Jack Untfager was released from prison amid much celebration and fanfare from the upper classes. He moved to Vienna. His plays were performed on national radio and television. His autobiography was taught in schools. He was lauded as an expert on criminal rehabilitation. This is another thing, is we make, we, we position people as experts when they're not. It's not, yeah. Like, like, no. Lived experience and expertise are not the same thing. Yeah. Otherwise, they'd be the same word, but they're not. Yeah. <laughs> Unterweger found work as a journalist, working both in magazines and on television. According to an article by The Guardian, he even posed topless in magazines to show off his prison tattoos. So, you know, a literal poster boy for the power of the arts and rehabilitation. Uh, He continued to write poems and fiction following his release. And many people have pointed out that his writing always contained violent themes, especially in relation to women. Although nobody seemed to notice he was writing about killing women when they were campaigning to get him released. Go figure. Uh, Nevertheless, those in the media and creative arts continued to flock to Unterweger, lapping up his every word about being a reformed character. And he had quite the fan club of adoring female admirers. Uh, Unterweger was never short on female company, and even had wealthy women supporting him financially after his release from prison. Although there were one or two who saw through his charade, including former colleagues, who couldn't understand why so many women women were attracted to him when he showed little more than contempt for them both in his writing and his everyday interactions with women. Yeah, I definitely saw parallels with Ted Bundy Yeah, in this one. Um we'll get to a bit later (laughs) um but yeah it's just positioning men as being more than they are yeah or just positioning criminals as being like there's a lot to be said about like the criminal justice system policing in general Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of reform needs to be made and i'm you know like we will always need prisons. Yeah. A lot of people in prison shouldn't be in prison. They need social care. Yeah. Social workers. Yeah. People like him need to be in prison. Yeah. Some people are just a danger to society. And when like, you can't imprison someone and you can't charge them with a crime they haven't committed. Yes. But he did. So. He committed that crime. They should have kept him. <laughs> yeah. And no amount of writing and no amount of eloquent speech yeah. or literary prowess changes the fact that he's a murderer. Yeah, it's kind of a big one. Mm. Which leads nicely into my next point. <laughs> so Unterweger was not the first criminal-turned-artist to be released following 
a campaign by liberal elites or the media in general. Mm-hmm. So French writer and habitual criminal Jean Genet was freed following a campaign by Jean-Paul Sartre and others, and he never returned to prison. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, so a Scottish artist, Jimmy Boyle, he is a convicted murderer. Um, he was released in 1981, serving uh, just under 15 years of a life sentence. And he went on to become a critically acclaimed artist and sculptor. And according to Wikipedia, he now lives in Monaco. Wow. Mm-hmm. How nice for him. Uh, so these are like the examples that those in Vienna wanted to kind of draw parallels to when it came to Untervega's case. <sighs> but there was a case in America, which unfortunately turned out to be more accurate <laughs> in uh, sort of charting a path as to what Untervega's post-prison life would look like. So Jack Henry Abbott was uh, convicted of forgery crimes, for- was convicted of forgery charges in the 1960s, but whilst serving that sentence, he stabbed another inmate. He later escaped and robbed a bank, which he was like charged. His sentence was increased accordingly. I'm not sure if it was manslaughter or murder mm-hmm. that he was charged with in that instance, though. Uh, so during his time in prison, he wrote his memoir, and in the late 1970s began corresponding with author Norman Mailer. Mailer promised to help Abbott get his memoir published and spearheaded a campaign to get him released on parole. In, within six weeks of release, Abbott's memoir had been published and he had killed a man. Great. Yeah. Not what you want. Yeah. So there, there are precedents both yeah, ways. Yeah, both ways, yeah. Oh, makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Throughout 1990 and 1991, Unterweger killed at least 11 more women. But just like his first victim, Margaret, uh, sadly, we know very little about these women other than their names and where they were from. 30-year-old Blanka Bochkova was murdered near Prague in Czechoslovakia, as it was known at the time, uh, in September 1990, uh, which is just four months after... Unterweger had been released from prison. Blanca had been strangled with her own bra. Another similarity there. Yeah. Uh, he killed seven women in Austria. Brunhilde Masser, age 39, in October 1990. Heidi Hemmerer, age 31, in December 1990. Elfrida Schrempf, age 35. Sylvia Zegler, age 23. Sabine Moitzel, age 25, Karen Eroglu-Sladki, age 25, Regina Prem, age 32, um, so Elfrida, Sylvia, Sabine, Karen, and Regina were all murdered in the spring of 1991. All of the women were strangled using their own bras. Some of these murders took place around Vienna, Others around the city of Graz, around 100 miles south of Vienna. Uh, With the exception of the second Austrian victim, Heidi Hammerer, who was murdered near Bregenz, a city in western Austria close to the Swiss border. All of the women were found in woodland areas on the outskirts of the cities. And when he wasn't committing these heinous crimes, Unterweger was on television and in the newspapers, 
offering his commentary on the murders uh, in his position as a reformed criminal. Oh, boy. There's so much wrong with that. In 1991, Antovega was hired by the by an Austrian magazine to write an investigative piece on differing attitudes in Europe and the USA to prostitution. <laughs> and for this piece, Untervega had to travel around a number of red light districts, which, yeah, that's kind of what you do as an investigative journalist. Yeah. Investigating mm-hmm. uh, prostitution or sex work of any kind. For research, obviously. Yeah, uh-huh. Nothing more. As as part of this research into American attitudes towards street prostitution, uh, Untervega travelled to LA, specifically Skid Row, and even stayed at the infamous Cecil Hotel <laughs> in downtown LA. Untervega split his time between actually doing research for his article, even going along on like ride-alongs with the LAPD, and like essentially being taken on a tour around Skid Row, downtown LA Mm -hmm. with police and actually using the services offered by Skid Row sex workers. God. But not all of the women who got paid got away safely. And during the course of Untervega's stay in LA, he murdered three sex workers from the downtown area. So there's Shannon Exley, Irene Rodriguez and Peggy Booth. All of them were violently beaten before being strangled with their own bras. Yes. Like, that's a very specific signature. Uh-huh. The fact like, that nobody is putting that together is mind-boggling. Especially yeah. if he has such a high-profile public persona. Yeah. <sighs> and also... Like I've seen in like documentaries, I read a lot about uh, people, being, uh, women being strangled using like socks mm-hmm. or stockings or tights. Mm-hmm. Raz is very specific, yeah, for sure, and kind of difficult when you think about you it. You would think, but because it's not exactly a straight line. No. So it's like he's going out of his way to do this specifically. It's not just like opportunity. No. Like it's not like you know like some are called like skid row slashes mm-hmm. where they target the less dead essentially. Mm-hmm. It's just so specific. It's so specific, yeah. And so if you enter the US, you have to declare any and all criminal convictions. Yeah. Even uh, even if they're spent. So you have to declare this mm-hmm. to get into the US. And I can't imagine it was that different. No. Back in 91, because that's also the end of the Cold yeah. War. No, I'm, I'm sure that's been on there. So you have to declare... In your visa application, that you're a convicted murderer. You would think that would raise some red flags. Yeah. 
And I know we look at all of this with hindsight and the systems are all digitized now. Yeah, but still. There's just so many, like, gaping holes (laughs) in this case. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, But alas, initially, nobody suspected Unterweger of the murders in Vienna and Graz. Because, after all, he was now a celebrity... He was rehabilitated. Everyone loved him. But in the absence of any other leads, authorities in Graz began to follow him. Uh, The method of using women's own bras to strangle them matched the way that Unterweger had killed his first victim, Margaret, and the murders began shortly after his release from prison and then stopped when he traveled to L.A. So, yeah, that's pretty clear it was eventually put together took a minute Mm. uh but they didn't have any concrete evidence against him before he left the country in california the lapd were beginning to make the same connections the murders of the three women from downtown la corresponded with the time underveger was in la and the method of killing matched up with underveger's first murder in 1974 and with the unsolved murders in Graz and Vienna. Do you know what thought has just occurred mm-hmm. to me? Um, you know the Gypsy Rose Blanchard mm-hmm. case? And like doctors were essentially, even when they had concerns that her illness, like her illnesses either weren't as severe as her mother was making out, or like things just didn't match yeah. up. These doctors were told, no, treat them with kid gloves because, you know, she's you know, they got a house from uh, Habitat for yep. Humanity. She was part of Make-A-Wish yeah. and all of that. And she was basically a celebrity yeah. child. Yeah. Um, It kind of seems like that attitude towards him, like, oh no, because he's this poster boy for rehabilitation. We can't look too deep into anything. Yeah, well, and also I'm sure, you know, he's a, he's a public figure now. He's a national yeah. journalist and whatever. He has power. So if someone, you know, on the LAPD, some beat cop on the LAPD is like, hey, you murdered someone like this, like these women are being murdered, you could get them fired, you know? Mm. So I think I would totally see people having to tread lightly. Yeah. Yeah. That Comparisons all over the place. No. Red flags everywhere. <laughs> yes, literally. Uh, so by late 1991, police in Austria finally had enough evidence to arrest Unterweger for the murders in Vienna and Graz. But by the time the warrant for his arrest was issued and the police went to find him, he had fled. Along with his uh, his girlfriend, Bianca Mrak, who was about 20 years younger than him. I did read her age in one of the sources and then couldn't find it again. But she was either like late teens or early 20s, whereas in 91, Unterweger was 41. Of course. Yeah. Which, like, power and abuse and... Yeah. Nope. <laughs> so, uh, Unterweger and and uh, Marac had travelled from Vienna through Austria into Switzerland, then France, and then they flew to the US. And they were hiding out in Miami Beach... And Unterweger contacted Austrian media and tried to convince him of his innocence. Although by this point, 
there were few who were believing him, and many who had been vocal supporters and campaigners of his release began to distance themselves from him. And this is kind of what led to his capture. That's good. Yeah. In February 1992, uh, FBI agents posed as reporters from a magazine called Success, and they offered him $10,000, which would be about double that today, Mm -hmm. just under $20,000, to tell his side of the story and kind of clear his name in the press. Unser Vega took the bait, but instead of walking into a room you know, filled with fawning reporters, as he expected, Jack Underbaker walked into a room full of U.S. Marshals and was promptly arrested. Oh, God. Uh, Three months later, he was extradited back to Austria, uh, where he was charged with all 11 murders. Although some of his supporters had turned on him, there were still plenty who stuck by him. And again, like Ted Bundy, there were many women who just, like, fawned over him and like professed his innocence the whole time and were like even crying as he was like as the trial was going on they were just like sat in the courtroom crying jesus christ yeah i just yeah <laughs> like of course he would go and tell his story because he thinks he's untouchable yeah like and that that arrogance was literally his downfall yeah good <laughs> Finally, something is his downfall. But what? Like, he he, and he alone is responsible for the crimes he committed. Yeah. He had no accomplices who have been charged that we could find. But those that campaigned for his release very quickly kind of distanced themselves. Some held their hands up and was like, I was yeah, wrong. I was wrong. I was deceived. I thought right up until the end mm-hmm. that, you know, he was being fitted up. But then, it's like so many people do. They're just like, nah, nothing to do with me. Yeah. Which, technically, yes, is correct. Yeah. He committed the murders alone. But these people were instrumental in having him released. Yeah, exactly. Like, he wouldn't have and descri- had des- the chance. Yeah, so far as describing it as being like the, you know, the... Austrian justice system rests on whether he was released. Yeah. Just like, oh, bet you're regretting that statement now. Yeah. And that's what annoys me. And it's a thing that elites and upper classes get away with. Yeah. Whereas, do you remember we did the Sharon, uh, Shannon Matthews case? Uh huh. Like, British working classes back when that case happened, which I remember because it's not that long ago, mm-hmm. people who stuck by that family, who helped that family, were villainized and demonized just as much as the family themselves. Yeah. We, you know, Northern work, Northern and Yorkshire working class families didn't get to just go, eh, nothing to do with us. Yeah. It's definitely unbalanced and it, like whole swaths of the population get either painted as you know guilty by association or yeah you know absolutely scot-free yeah which again goes back to the earlier point of making people experts in things they know nothing about yeah no kidding so underfigure's trial didn't take place until the summer of 1994 
and prior to the trial, a psychiatrist di diagnosed him as having narcissistic personality disorder and presented these findings to the court. Other evidence came from the investigators in L.A. who matched hair found on one of the victims to Unterweger. Uh, the jury returned a verdict of guilty of nine of the 11 murders by a majority verdict of six to two, which at the time was enough for a conviction in Austria, at least according to Wikipedia. Yeah, I didn't go really have time to go into it and find out if that's still the case. Yeah. Because that's only an eight person jury. That's, that's small. Not a lot. Yeah. That is, that's I wonder if they had trouble finding people unbiased enough to serve. I don't know, and I do actually have a friend from Vienna who we could <laughs> probably have asked about this, but oh. I didn't. That's okay. Unterweger was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole on June 29th, 1994, and was taken from the court to graz Karlow prison, which is the third largest prison in Austria. Uh, that night, Unterweger took his own life, hanging himself in his cell. And the knot he used was the same as the one he had used when strangling his victims. Unfortunately, because he had asserted his intention to appeal under Austrian law, his conviction wasn't assily. assily? <laughs> <sighs> um, his conviction wasn't actually classed as being legally binding because it had yet to be reviewed. And that is the story of Jack Unterweger and the ill-fated campaign and ideology that released him to kill again. Yep. Yep. Um, just want to say that's a bullshit thing of it, it, yeah. his conviction not being legally binding. Yeah. That is annoying. My thing is like... He was convicted. Yeah. So it shouldn't be, it should be after the review that they decide whether or not. It shouldn't automatically be, I want you to look at my case again. Yeah. It's a bit like the, um, the Skidmore case. Yeah. Um, where, what, what was his name? Ken McElroy? That's it. All I could think of was Macklemore, and I was like, no. That's not it. <laughs> um, yeah, so he he was convicted, but he was released pending an appeal. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you were still I, convicted. That That's a thing I, I don't understand, because it's not a part of all justice no, systems, yeah. or all uh, prison criminal conviction systems. So... But yeah, so he was still a murderer because he was never pardoned for his yes, that's his true. initial murder, which is good because he didn't deserve to be. No. Um, but yeah, that's dumb. Yeah. Well, yeah, that. Sam, I think we've said all we really have. I, to I was going to say I don't have much more to say about this. Like it's bullshit should never have been mm. released in the first place. And the fact that he was writing about being violent towards women and was observed in his day-to-day -day life to being incredibly contemptible. Misogynistic. Yeah, misogyn misogynistic towards women 
really people should have put the pieces together sooner. Yeah. Well, also, at the same time, he's being released. How? Like, he should never have been released. But people do get released on parole for murder, mm-hmm. like, after being convicted of murder. And it's like, what checks yeah, need to was be he... in place whilst you're on? Because it's only four months between being released and the the first murder he committed. Yeah. So was he not, like, on parole? Was he not on probation or any sort of similar yeah. systems? Like, why, why was there... Was it just that he had convinced everyone so thoroughly that he was a changed man that they were just like, oh, you don't need to check in? Yeah, but then that also goes back to like the issues of like power because yeah. this is like, they like say, quote unquote, literary, literary elite, mm-hmm. as they are described. What power and influence did they then have? Yeah, absolutely. Over those in actual power. Yeah, definitely. Um. Yeah. So, yeah, and you don't want to be the one asking the questions and butting up against that brick wall. Yeah. So there you go. So, back at the beginning of the episode, I did say that this episode links to another piece of free content uh-huh. that we'll be bringing out very, very soon. So if you subscribe to our newsletter, you already know this, but for everyone else, we are starting a monthly blog. Mm-hmm. So it won't all be in like the same kind of format as the podcast focused on like a serial case, a, a single case or a perpetrator, but they'll be linked in some way to like the monthly theme or a recent case. Yeah. So our first blog post is coming out this Friday, uh, January 14th, and it is on the history of the Cecil Hotel, mm-hmm. which is tangent- tangentially linked because Vega was one of the many infamous guests to stay at the equally infamous hotel. Mm-hmm. So, it's coming out soon. Yeah. That's exciting. I'm nervous. <laughs> it'll be fine. Hopefully, it'll be good. Hopefully it'll be fine. Th- this is like the, the blind dyslexic leading the blind dyslexic at this point, though, so... Uh, it's all good. Whatever. Having it in a written form is making me nervous, but I'm excited. I mean... Because it's a bit different. Yeah to what we normally do but it's it's just similar it's fun and hey my day job is literally editing blog posts so i think i could probably probably manage a a few copy edits (laughs) here and there (laughs) think we'll make it (laughs) i mean i'm not saying it means i can spell because it doesn't it means i have the right add-ons to google docs to make it all sound good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, now, because we are sort of in the process of making some changes to our website, uh, we've decided that the blog is going to be hosted on our Patreon page, but um, it will be free for everyone t- to read. It's just a, a convenient place for us to host it and... They also take a commission every month from, from you know, what you guys so lovingly donate to us. So we might as well get some more use out of the platform. Um, and you won't need to sign up uh, or pay to read it or anything. You just need to go to patreon.com slash square mile of murder and 
uh, scroll through for the latest unlocked post. It should be pretty obvious because it'll be the only like they'll be the only sort of full length looking posts on the on the feed. Yeah. Um, you do, however, need an account to comment on the post if, if that's, um, what you're, something that you're interested in doing. Uh, yeah. You don't have to pay. Like, it's just no, a it's sign just up. like an email. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, just like a login, like you would for most blog yeah. comment sections. Yeah. And there'll also be a post on Instagram and Facebook when, uh, the blog goes live. So you can comment and talk about it there or as always you can email us at, at uh, info at squaremileofmurder.com if you'd like to do that instead uh, and we'll also send out an email to anyone and everyone on uh, our newsletter mailing list with a link on Friday and there'll be a link in the uh, episode description to sign up for said newsletter so yeah. all, all fun exciting new things um so yeah yeah keep an eye on that on friday uh and then we will be back next week yes. with a another new episode yes we will so uh we will see you all then yeah yeah thanks, thanks for listening bye bye